The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law Professor Stephen Wagner, and I am joined as always by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon-to-be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Okay, I'm laughing because you actually had to take a breath in between all three of them. We're changing <laughs> we're changing the lead in, you know. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, before we get started today, uh, you had shot me a quick message to, to remind me what you were up to this week. And I know you can't talk specifically about it, but just a reminder that you are an active practicing attorney. What are you up to this week? Yes, I am. I'm currently engaged in a trial. And um, what I can say is that it does involve the charge of vehicular homicide while intoxicated. And that's really all I can say. Yeah, well, but but it just reminds people that we talk about these issues, and you're actually there practicing many of these aspects of both uh, criminal law and constitutional rights. I mean, every single day, that's your job. I get involved in teaching it, but you're actually out there doing it. I am, you know, and what's great, Mitch, is that I teach criminal procedure and criminal law, and I'm presently doing criminal procedure, and... That requires a lot of discussion on Fourth Amendment and police citizen contacts, and it's uh, it's fascinating because I'm actively involved in that in my practice, and I benefit greatly from that experience and the experience that I glean from defense attorneys also. So it really is a good, wholesome experience overall, and hopefully I, I have an opportunity to pay it forward and, and uh, help students along the way. And, and, you know, we don't talk a lot about what we do when we're not on the radio show, but, but it's an, another reminder that you're, you're a, a prosecutor, so you're, you, your day-to-day job is on the public side of representing the citizens as a, as a public attorney, but you were also on the private side, so you had the opportunity to see civil practice and civil trials as well. Yes, that's right, and it's given me a great opportunity to see the two different burdens of proof and the two different rules of engagement procedurally and the great differences in uh, how trials are run, criminal trials versus civil trials. So it's good, well-rounded experience, and I'm, I'm blessed and very fortunate. Well, if someone looked at our promo on the website today, they would see that we were going to have a guest, Chris Soriano, who's a gambling expert. But unfortunately, due to the terrible storms that hit the East Coast, Chris is not able to join us. But we are going to stick with the topic of, if you want to launch it, it was your idea. 
Gambling. <laughs> Gambling. Yeah, I, and particularly I, I March Madness, which right, is that, going that's on why right I, now. That's why I thought it was appropriate, Mitch, because we were moving into the March Madness, the NCAA tournament, <clears throat> and it's. Uh, I think we're we can see that uh, there's a great spike in in gambling activity, bookmaking activity, some legal, some illegal, but uh, certainly March, I think, empirically is one of the months that uh, really showcases the issue of gambling for amusement, uh, which might not technically go by the name gambling. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's certainly in play when we're talking about college hoops. In In play. play. See, there you go. Playing on those words again. Well said. Well said. Before we get into that, if, if you would give me just a minute... I just want to highlight four topics. I'm, we're not going to spend any time on these, but just a reminder that who would have thought that constitutional law and what would have sometimes thought to be somewhat obscure legal issues continue to dominate the headlines every day. And each week we say, well, we'll move on to something else. And blam, there they are again. But I, I have to start with one that is near and dear to your heart, and that is, I know you're wondering what I'm about to say, drones. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you, you didn't expect me to pick drones, did you? No, well, you know, you do kind of have a habit of going back to drones. and <laughs> I do, and, and for, for, total, uh, for total disclosure, neither you nor I have any relationship with the drone industry, correct? That's a good point, and, a, and an apt disclaimer, Mitch, because we do talk about it a lot, but you know, we're prompted to do so because of all the attention drones get. We predicted this way, way back, well over a year ago, right? That's exactly right. We've talked about drones both as far as in consumer use and in commercial use and in agricultural use. Uh, but today, I want to bring, bring forward a story that came out of Oklahoma. There's a, a bill in the Senate of Oklahoma, Senate Bill 660 by Senator... Ralph Shorty. I'm not making it up. Sometimes truth is better than fiction. Ralph Shorty at in Oklahoma, he has a bill that will no longer make it illegal to, it'll actually not illegal, that's a poor choice. There'll be civil immunity to anyone who destroys a drone that's flying over their pro- private property. What do you think about that? Wow. Uh Okay, so my first reaction, not having read the proposed law or the moving parts of the law, is that it seems like it's fraught with peril and potential liability. Um, it sounds like it's kind of a self-endorsing self-help measures. Is that right, Mitch? You're right. So he and it, and he's he's it's my guess is the first version of the law, but you, you hit the nail right on the head. So, so what he said, and I'll just give you a quick summary of it because it's evidently a fairly short law, but a person owning or controlling real estate or who voluntarily damages or destroys a drone located on the real estate or premises or within the airspace, and we're going to get back to that, or within the airspace of the real estate or premises, not otherwise regulated by the FAA, or where a reasonable expectation of privacy exists, shall not be civilly liable for causing the damage or destruction to the drone. Wow. wow. So that, that's a mouthful. Uh, 
what I didn't hear you say uh, was anything about the measures that the homeowner can take in an effort to uh, remove the drone. Of course, it's of course. Oklahoma, so guns are going to be okay. Uh, see, <laughs> I gave you the honors on that one, Mitch. That's why I paused. Little drum roll there. I I couldn't help but conjure up the visual of somebody using a shotgun to take the drone out of the sky. That's exactly right. So there have been some concerns, exactly what you pointed out. Immediately, the, the the folks have come out and said, first of all, that as we talked about on the show before, drones are considered aircraft. And so you certainly, under federal law, cannot take a shotgun to an aircraft of any type. So it immediately sets up a conflict, should this law pass. Remember, it's just proposed now. hasn't even been voted on in the, the Oklahoma Senate. But as written, it doesn't resolve a conflict between federal and state law since the airway, the airlines and the FAA are federal agencies. That's right. So when you mention the FAA and airspace, that uh, makes me think about the uh, height restrictions in airspace and how, how low the drone can fly. And there will be an interplay between federal law, which typically does govern and occupy the field of law in that area in terms of how, what the height restrictions are. That's exactly so that right. And generally 400 feet, I think, is mentioned frequently as being the, the area in which a, a commercial aircraft is not supposed to come below. So it's a, it's, we're really talking about an area between you know, ground level and 400 feet. But the second piece of it, because you nailed the first one exactly right, the second piece was there was concern that encourages the discharge of firearms, possibly in residential areas, since that's most likely the type of property you're protecting. So there was a little bit of concern that it wasn't, it wasn't specific as far as what the height level was. And we know that drones can go thousands of feet up. So uh, it, it was a problematic with that because it probably conflicted with federal law. It was problematic because of the discharge of a firearm. It doesn't regulate the discharge of a firearm in a, in a likely residential area. And it, it, there's a concern that this is an attempt for the state law to override federal law, which, of course, would be a problem as well. So those gaps and potential ambiguities will need to be filled, and we can stay tuned to see what happens with that one, Mitch. But I think it is a good point to bring up because... The control and the restrictions placed on users of drones, uh, as we predicted, I don't think it was a, a bold prediction by any means, but we knew that there were going to be uh, laws that were going to be fashioned or proposed that would uh, make restrictions a little bit more uh, harsher on the users of drones. That's exactly, That's exactly right. And a quick reminder that when we talked about drones in detail and this right of privacy, and we're certainly not making light of one's expectation of privacy. We've talked about that as a, as a fundamental constitutional right. But what it, what it does say is that there are, oh, no, what the reminder is that there are laws on the books. You don't need to add a drone law to define expectation of privacy, peeping Tom laws, other things that restrict government and police, what they can do as far as peering over fences, using ladders, standing on a roof next to you, being in an airplane. You don't really need a drone law specifically to protect your privacy. 
That is, that's true. Good point. However, drones do carry cameras, and that's one of the focal points and one of the main concerns, too. That's exactly right. So anyway, just a quick brief idea that, just as you said, we alerted everyone that more laws will be forthcoming to help address the changing availability of drones. This is probably the first of many. There may be many others going on we don't know of. It just happened to hit the national news today. So let me go back to one just briefly. We talked. We spent the entire program last week talking about wiretapping, and I don't think there'll be any surprise because we completed that show last week in saying that there would be more to come because this was an open item. It remains an open item. What has taken the headlines this, this week is that the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Republicans in particularly have said there appears to be no actual documentation to back up the president's claim that Trump Tower was wiretapped. So hit the news again. It's going to again bring up the issues we talked about a week ago. All I can say on that one is stay tuned. We're not done with that story yet. And at the risk of, of quoting um, someone that might um, make us go off on some political discussions, we are in a trust but verify kind of mode. Right, Mitch? I'll, I'll leave you to reinforce the trust part, but we're definitely in the verify mode. Well, <laughs> I'm sharing that because there is a direct connection between the there two. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then... Uh, will not surprise anybody because you would have to have been living under a rock to know that there's to not know that there's a new executive order dealing with immigrants from now six countries. Uh, this uh, this executive order followed the one we talked again. We had a full show talking about the president's initial executive order. It was granted a TRO. It was appealed. We walked through that entire process on a prior show. Uh, that was the appeal on the TRO was not granted. Therefore, the first order has been on hold. In the meantime, as you predicted, the administration went back to the drawing board and issued a new executive order that they claimed followed the directions of the Ninth Circuit. So they, they listened to the court. They drafted a new order. They represented it. So and we will see if it it uh, withstands additional scrutiny. We'll stand exactly. by it and track that one again. Exactly so Mitch, let's right. let's transition a little bit uh, because we're coming up on the break. Um, we do want to talk about the topic of gambling and bookmaking. When we come back after this break, we'll take that topic on. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. When we return, we're going to talk about bookmaking, gambling, and the laws associated with both those activities. And, of course, it's March Madness. We'll be right back. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. 
established 44 years ago. We are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information... Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we are about to transition into the topic of gambling and bookmaking. And, uh, of course, we'll talk about some of the laws connected to gambling and bookmaking. And if you're wondering why we're talking about it, it is March Madness time, right, Mitch? March Madness, which is the NCAA giant basketball tournament that really takes everybody's attention, including people in offices. Absolutely, Mitch. And, you know, we should say that as far as TV ratings go and coverage, it's pretty off the charts in terms of the amount of people that are captivated by the tournament. That's exactly right. And no surprise, with that type of an activity and winners and losers, betting gets involved. So you pick the right topic, gambling and betting. And let's talk specifically about those office betting pools and bracket squares for scores and things like that. So, Stephen, want to lead off. You're our criminal lawyer. Is it legal to have an office pool? So 
Mitch, here's the the way that that yes, I think yes or no, Mr. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's legal. You know what? Though? I'll tell you what, Mitch. It, it really is an opportunity to say it depends oh. in, a, in a learned fashion. It's okay. true. All right. So, um, of course, <clears throat> the action centers on um, what does it depend upon, and and really most of the focus is on whether or not there's profit or so-called house profit involved. And if there is no profit built in to the, uh, you introduced pools, office pool first, because there's a couple other things we can talk about. Filling squares, you know, for a football game. Uh, so if there's no profit, there's a code section in our penal code in California. And I can't speak to a lot of the other states, uh, but there's a code section that has a carve out provision that that will only make uh, certain activities a fine so long as it's under a certain threshold amount. But if the house doesn't benefit or, or a profit doesn't come to the, uh, the original circulators into that person's pocket, then typically it's, it's not considered a form of gambling. Okay, so I, I think the the California rule, and probably sounds like many of the other states do, that if I think this it says if it's not an online pool, and if it's less than twenty five hundred dollars, then you're right. It's it not necessarily legal, but at the most the maximum penalty would be for a two hundred fifty dollar fine. So so it's most of the articles and most of the commentary on it says that if you're in the United States, and you're participating in a betting office pool. And those are ones where generally you all fill out the bracket all the way to the end, and the person who gets the largest number of wins, or the person who gets the people in the final, the four teams in the final four, and gets the ultimate winner. I mean, all of these are stages in which prizes could be awarded. Uh, that is technically illegal in virtually every state in the United States, but it's probably not prosecutable. Now, that be a fair way to say it? I think that may be right. Uh, my reference to the house profiting, it really goes probably more to another form uh, of gambling, and that is, that's related to card rooms, uh, mm-hmm. because that's another, another topic. There's a number of things we can talk about, because there's... there's what are called games of chance, Mitch, and I think uh, raffles, bingo games, and things like that. You've probably run into this uh, professionally, I suppose, when you've been, been involved in fundraisers, maybe, where perhaps there's a raffle and there is, uh, there's some prize money that goes to a worthy cause. That's exactly right. And, and there are, in most states now, have begun to regulate even those nonprofit activities on whether you, on what you can call it on how you can take you know how you can give out prizes but you're right generally the the threshold is if there's a skim off the top so let's say everybody puts in money you're the guy in the office that's organizing the office pool uh, everybody puts in a hundred bucks and there's a set of rules under which someone will get a disproportionate share. Maybe all of it, or maybe it'll be divided among two or three top folks. Let's say you've raised 500 bucks in that, and you keep $25 out of it for your trouble, 
and then the rest of it's given out. That's what you're talking about, isn't it, Stephen? That's right. Takes a piece of it. That's right. And anytime somebody stands to take a piece of it, that cries out for the need for marshalling and laws because there's an obvious concern for abuse in that kind of setting, for sure. So the listeners might wonder why we even care about any of this. So what? So what if there's a couple hundred bucks in an office pool? So what if even if it's $2,000 and there's a, a bunch of people that have gone in, it's fun, this is the NCAA basketball, why would the government care? But, you know, there's an estimate that there will be 70 million brackets filled out during March Madness. That's 70 million brackets. Can you, I I have a hard time even imagining that. Yeah, that's that's an amazing amount. And then of that 70 million, how many of those are deemed to be legal versus illegal? They think maybe 3%. (laughs) 3% being what, legal? Legal. Yeah, okay. The rest of it's off the books and not complying with the law. Okay. there's an estimate, and this is the American gaming industry estimate estimates that it could be a ten billion. That's B. That's a B billion. Ten billion dollars in total bets. This is not just the office pools. This is just betting on March Madness. So the answer to the question of why does the government care? Well, anytime you have ten billion dollars in play, there's the opportunity for abuse. Yes, yes, w- without question. And you had mentioned online, Mitch. Expand a little bit on the online aspect. Well, that's something that I, I suspect most people don't think about. It is still a violation of federal law to gamble in most states. Uh, there, you know, Nevada has it allowed. California has limited gambling. Louisiana, New York. I mean, there are states that are known for having gambling laws that allow certain types of games. But for the most part across the board, it's still a violation of federal law to illegally gamble. And that is just as true if you're gambling from the United States using the internet, even though the gambling site, the the website, is offshore on an island in a different country. And, And my guess is that most people don't realize that. Right, so off-site meaning, let's say, and I don't mean to pick on the Caribbean, but I have to pick someplace. Uh, it's just the point you're making is the poster, the person who actually uh, places the wager, might just push send and it gets communicated electronically uh, someplace out of the United States. That's exactly right, because it's not legal to run one of those online gambling sites in the United States. So if you're, if you're betting, and it could be Texas Hold'em, it could be betting on horse races, it could be betting on the NCAA tournament, on football, basketball, you name it. Because these, many of these online sites are set up for you to bet on just about anything you want to put a wager on. And so, but they're, and my guess is most people make no effort to actually go into the detailed fine print to find out where that website's actually located. And so you're right, Caribbean. Uh, I used to travel quite a bit to Costa Rica. Costa Rica had a huge gambling industry that was 100% based 
on internet gambling. There were entire high-rise buildings, I am told, that were nothing but giant server farms that serviced online gambling websites, and the government took a tax on it. So the government in Costa Rica said, that's fine. It's good, clean industry. We don't mind having it. You pay corporate income tax on it. We're happy to have it. So it was one of the first to have large-scale online gambling hosted in that independent country. But it did not make it legal with websites. With with oversight. Yes. In that case, with well, theoretically, with government oversight, yes. Okay. Theoretically, but that but the question goes to well, I'm gam aren't I gambling in Costa Rica then? If I log in here in California and place my wager, that would be illegal for me to do it here in California. Isn't it okay if I do it in a website in Costa Rica? Aren't I gambling actually in Costa Rica? And and Stephen, isn't that the same analysis? that's used in virtually any lawsuit as far as determining who's involved and where is the business being conducted? Yeah. That's at either end, isn't it? Isn't that the Yeah, it could be. Um, We see that in contract disputes quite often, uh, and we see it in uh, tort-based lawsuits. So the action centers on, um, in a tort, for instance, where did the injury occur is usually one of the important points. And it, it often comes down to venue, where should the matter be heard, and an, an issue having to do with jurisdiction, which court has jurisdiction to hear a matter. And in contract disputes, uh, there's going to be scrutiny placed on the offeror, the person who makes the offer, and then the offeree. And I think, Mitch, if you use the analogy or compare it to gambling and your reference to Costa Rica is interesting because it sounds like that might be an example where that's the hub of activity. You, you indicated there was some de- dedicated infrastructure there. So that's the receiving center, right, Mitch? That's correct. Yeah. So no doubt they're taking high volume calls. And of course, I don't purport to know um, intricate details about it, but I'm assuming that there's high volume uh, call activity. Uh, so the way the people making the wagers would be, I guess, by analogy, the the offerors and the uh, recipient of the offer would be the institution or the, the processing center in Costa Rica that um, logs right. and confirms the wager, right? That's right. And so people might ask, well, how does the federal government even get into regulating online gambling? Is the question, why? If it's legal in Costa Rica and I'm merely logging in in the privacy of my home or office here in the United States, why should the government care? You know, I, mean, I think that's a reasonable question. Well, it turns out that from 1961 on, that the U.S. government gets in because the telephone lines are regulated. Interstate oh, commerce. Interstate commerce. It's a, it's a federal... It's a, you know, a federal access to the highways, to the airwaves, and in this case, to the telephone lines. That's right. that's right. Even though these are private companies running the telephone lines, it triggers the federal laws related to interstate phone lines. And so if it would be interesting, uh, I don't know that I've actually seen a case, but I presume if you had a satellite dish on your roof and you were connecting to Costa Rica 
through a Costa Rican satellite that was, you were bouncing it from your roof to the satellite to the call center in Costa Rica, it certainly wouldn't trigger the interstate commerce laws. So it's conceivable that that form of, of online gambling might not be regulated. I'm not sure. What do you think? Um, I think we should do a disclaimer and make it quite clear that we are not creating new ideas of how to skirt the law. But that's a great question about interstate commerce and how it's defined. Uh, I guess, Mitch, if you go back to, because you made me think about use of the mails and, and the triggering device by which the federal government gets involved. And it would be because of interstate travel or commerce uh, and use of the mails, the U.S. mails, for instance. Uh, I guess the, the gone are the days when you would actually mail a wager, but, but any kind of use of uh, the mails or telephone use to go from one jurisdiction to another would give rise to federal coverage. And that's, uh, that's a good topic. Let's, when we're coming up on a break, but uh, let's talk a little bit more about... Uh, the intricate nature of the laws. And I wanted to talk a little bit about raffles and bingo and games of chance too, Mitch, because uh, oftentimes lawyers are called upon to render advice to agencies about whether they can conduct these activities. And that's pretty important, charitable versus non-charitable organizations. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. And we are midstream into a topic about gambling and bookmaking. And we will continue that conversation when we get back. Don't go away. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. 
The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about gambling laws and a couple of the laws connected to gambling in California, and that's led us into a discussion of so-called games of chance or or things like bingo and raffles, and that you had indicated that uh, a lot of these invitations to join an office pool actually generate and start in an office setting. That's exactly right. And I think on behalf of our business listeners, our business owners, and since we're on the broadcast on the voiceamerica.com business channel, uh, here's a shout out just to keep in mind, although Stephen started the show by talking about there are carve-outs in many of these states that, that make this at worst a misdemeanor. It is important to remember that if you are a business owner and there is betting, illegal gambling going on in your company and you have reason to know about it, there is liability of the business owner themselves for allowing an illegal enterprise to be going on in their business. And so it, it does have a bit of seriousness to it, but I think, Stephen, wouldn't you agree, it would have to be something that's a gross violation. If somebody's running tens of thousand dollars worth of pools before the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office would be likely to get involved. You know, Mitch, I think that's probably true. It would probably need to be rather prolific in nature, Uh, but I I like that you're getting that point out, and although we don't make a point of dispensing legal advice per se, you've actually cited to something really important, and that is that there could be vicarious liability or perhaps even direct liability if uh, the corporation either knew, or I would add this, Mitch, should have known. Because the office settings where office pools get circulated uh, sometimes just cavalierly go from inbox to inbox, and usually there's somebody in charge in the office. And the fact we talked about electronic discovery, you've just got, it's not it's not just a little piece of paper that gets passed from cube to cube nowadays. The odds are pretty good that it's being circulated by email, and therefore that record is discoverable. And if, if something went south and there was a, a legal action, uh, those records would be available. That's a corporate record in the corporate email server that could be found, could be subject to a warrant, and could be part of discovery. That is, that is true, and, and if you also think about the strength of that evidence, I'm thinking now about the, uh, 
football squares where you pay to, to buy a square. Right, right. What do you put in the square? What goes there? Oh, your initial or your name. Sometimes <laughs> not just me not there. Just initial. <laughs> I had to think about that. I like the pause, Mitch. That was good. Creating the impression that you just don't know. <laughs> that was good. Wouldn't I be a good witness? Well, I, I don't know, Your Honor. I, I don't know. I, uh, oh, maybe it's a name. <laughs> right. So it is usually an initial. An initial, a name. Hey, sometimes a phone number, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So there, it's just that kind of to wrap up that part of the gambling. It it is, it is fun. Uh, I I will say that in the articles I read leading up to the show, what the uh, federal government officials, whether it's the U.S. Attorney's Office or the FBI uh, or the Department of Justice, what they generally say is these tend to be very small incidents. They leave it up to local law enforcement to do the investigation. They're unlikely to dispatch an FBI agent to investigate whether there's an office pool going on in your company. Uh, So since they're leaving it to local law enforcement, unless they allocate the resources, there's not going to be an investigation. Therefore, there'll be no data to send it up to the federal level. Therefore, the likelihood of prosecution is de minimis. And, you know, Mitch, you would talked about government regulation or any form of regulation, whether it's state regulation or federal regulation, uh, I think it's worth noting that in gambling scenarios such as, I'll use uh, horse racing. In California, we have a horse racing board that, that sits in Sacramento, and they provide oversight for a number of things having to do with wagering aspects and and a number of issues connected to uh, safety of the uh, jockeys and conditions at various racetracks. We have some very, very horses too. Uh, safety of the jockeys, treatment of the horses, veterinary regulations related to the tracks, racing horses uh, injured, things like that. Absolutely. So it's a very highly regulated business. Very, very highly regulated. It is. I do. It, when you mention horse racing, I do have to reflect back on growing up in Texas. Uh, in Texas, we didn't have thoroughbred racing when I was growing up, which was the types of horse racing you would see, you know, the Kentucky Downs, Churchill Downs, things like that. We had quarter horse racing, which the most common type of horse in Texas. They're short because quarter horses race more like the hundred yard dash, not, they do, eight, do not a mile. Four forties <laughs> and eight seventy. Yeah. 870 furlongs. <laughs> but you would go to the county fairgrounds, which is public, a public fairground, and there would be regular quarter horse racing. And of course, there'd be no fancy windows where you'd go up to place your bet and get your little piece of paper. But there were guys with cowboy hats wandering around through the stands that everybody knew who they were. And you'd write down your bet on a little piece of paper and they'd give you a little receipt. And it was betting just as big as can be. Not a bit of it was legal. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, the, the quarter horses, I, I've seen quarter horses myself at uh, Bay Meadows, a former track in San Mateo County, actually. And uh, I misspoke. I said 870 furlongs. That would be cruel and unusual punishment. That's way too long. I meant 870 feet. I think I meant six furlongs is what I meant. Okay. Somebody can check my math on that. But they're sprinters. They run short distances. They are. Right? They are. Yeah, absolutely. 
So uh, we should talk just just briefly. We've got a little bit of time here at the end. You know, the, the history of gambling goes back to the origin of the United States. I don't think people realize it. This is not a modern issue. You know, we started here in talking about internet gambling, but but gambling really starts back in the original 13 colonies. And I didn't realize that all 13 colonies had lotteries, because you mentioned lotteries. All 13 colonies had lotteries going on back there, in the, even before it was the United States of America. They were still being regulated by England, believe it or not. And there was discussion that uh, part of the war for independence, we always talk about it being taxation, but one of the disagreements between the colonies and the crown was that they also regulated and taxed the local lotteries. And people were upset about that as well. And you don't really, I don't know about you, I didn't see that part in the discussion in my history book. No, you know? I didn't. So the dispute arose uh, out of the, the taxing or the decision to tax. The taxing and the regulation of who could, who could run them and what the rules were and what the payouts would be. So there was so there we have gambling back at the early early days. As most people will remember, it has ebbed and flowed across the history of the United States. There was a section of time in the early 1900s when it became illegal. But up until then there were various forms of of gambling that were allowed. Different states had rules. But then in in 19 early 1900s gambling uh, pretty much became illegal across the entire United States. So they, they think of it two phases, the earlier phase when there was lots of gambling, the middle phase when there wasn't. And then uh, 1930s, we saw wagering. Uh, you mentioned horse racing. It came back in Michigan, New Hampshire, Ohio, California, legalized horse racing and paramutual bet- betting. Uh, 1930s, 21 states actually had racetracks and, and betting. So from that point till now, we saw that gambling started coming back in. Uh, I will point to just fascinating little pieces of history that came out in my research. First of all, uh, the federal government, the U.S. federal government then, actually used a lottery to help fund the war against England. How about that? <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yep. Uh, Jamestown, Virginia was the funds for Jamestown, Virginia, one of the original colonies, was uh, had a lottery to help fund the development of Jamestown. Uh, we had, uh, let's see, the 1920, I'm sorry, 1820s, there was a federal lottery to help build Washington, D.C., to make it more of a tourist center because it was still pretty rough back in there. And so you, the government, you mentioned that the government involvement, and the government has used lotteries to raise money from almost the first time that there were Puritans and uh, England English citizens that arrived by boat. On the East so Coast. That speaks to the value of history. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. So they used game of chance as a means of funding a laudable or ostensibly laudable pursuit, which I think we see in bingo raffles and 
games of chance today, I think. So maybe that's uh, borrowing from the old times in a way. I think that's exa- exactly right. What we saw was that obviously the East Coast was the first area in which gambling took a, a major role. And you know, we know New Jersey, New York, there was gambling. New Orleans and Louisiana dominated gambling for several decades. That was the, that's, you may remember as you grew up, you grew up that, you know, the idea of the riverboat gambler. That's right, that's right. right. Parlors, parlors, yep. Yep. And that, that was a major source of revenue for Louisiana, taxing and regulating gambling and riverboat gambling there during that period of time. And then the gold rush in California is what brought it out here. No surprise at all. And so you saw both uh, gambling parlors and you know, games of chance of just about every type uh, was developed here in California. And I bet you didn't know, I'll just throw one last little piece of, of history here. The first slot machine, okay, slot machine, invented and premiered where? San Francisco in 1895. San Francisco. Wow, that's interesting. And, yep. and, what, and what location? It didn't say. Can't tell you where. But it okay. was in San Francisco in 1895. So I think most people would have voted Nevada was where slot machines were invented, but it was in San Francisco, California. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so I skipped a little over Nevada. So I I guess I went from Louisiana all the way to California. But as we know, Nevada was the first state to reopen gambling as a regulated industry for the state. It still dominates the U.S. gambling industry here in the United States. And again, similar to the uses of lotteries in the early days of the U.S. government, Nevada opened it up as a state-regulated industry after the Hoover Dam was put in, and they wanted to develop a tourist industry out in the middle of the desert. And the state decided that that would be a great way to raise revenue and support infrastructure, and that's why Nevada bloomed as a, a gambling mecca. And continues and continues to be so today, especially with the sports book activity. That's exactly right. So they, so you see, you know, Nevada regulating it, and we've skipped over the most colorful part, which we're just not going to get to today, which is the the difficulty of the regulating criminal activities that allegedly surround gambling and mobsters in Chicago and all of those really colorful. Wonderful stories, Bugsy Malone. All the, all the characters, and we can introduce Elliot Ness too, maybe. <laughs> That's exactly Robert Stack. Okay. That's exactly right. So we've tried to give you a broad overview of gambling. We are giving you a warning out there that if you're in an office pool, you should be cautious. There shouldn't be somebody taking a, a take, a skim off it. And if you're a business owner, you ought to make sure things aren't getting out of line there at all. So As we remind you every week on Wagner and Winnick on the Law, you can hear an archived version of this program at wagnerandwinnick.com, on voiceamerica.com business channel, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thank you.
I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people. But I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 